0: good morning it's so good to see you all here today um i hope you're all doing well i know the weather's up and down and that makes it somewhat challenging first let me apologize for my voice i do not have covid i do however have post nasal drip as a result of my first covid shot that i got yesterday so i probably didn't make the wisest decision to go get that shot yesterday but i'm grateful that i was able to get that shot that said, I've got all everything I could use up here. My sweet friend in my Bible study group brought her tea, hadn't had a chance to take a sip of it. So she gave it to me, and hopefully that's going to help me get through this. So one of the things we really focused on as leaders this year when we began to prepare the materials was that we wanted to look for the major themes that came through the book of Luke, what Luke was trying to convey. And if you'll remember, one of the things we talked about was um, that he was trying to know, help us know for certainty who Jesus was. He also focuses a lot on the kingdom of God. And it's no surprise that that is found here in chapter 17 as well, because we've learned several things about the kingdom of God. And before we dive into today's text... <clears throat> I want to take just a minute and let's look at what we've learned already about the kingdom of God. In Luke 4.43, we learned that the kingdom of God is good news. Luke 6.20 tells us that the kingdom of God is for the poor. Luke 9.6 introduces us to the, kingdom, that, to the fact that the kingdom of God requires single-minded perseverance. We cannot look back with fondness or longing at what is behind us. We must look forward with focus. We also see that in today's chapter, Luke 17, 31 and 33, where we see on that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Also in Luke 13, 18 through 19, we learned that the kingdom of God can be small like a mustard seed, but will have huge influence like the leaven mixed into the flour. We we see that not everyone will enter the kingdom of God in chapter 13, verse 28, and in chapter 14, verses 15 through 23. In 13, 29... We learn that the kingdom of God is not exclusive to one people, group, nationality, or ethnicity. People from everywhere, east, west, north, and south, will enter the kingdom of God. Luke 14.33 teaches us that there is a cost to joining the kingdom of God. Today, we're going to talk about the kingdom of God, but this will not be the last time we study the kingdom of God in Luke. We'll see this thing continue on throughout the rest of the book of Luke. So let's pray, and we'll talk about what we're going to learn today. Oh, most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity we have to gather together as women and study your word. Lord, I thank you that you make your word come alive to us, that it is still relevant, it is still true, it is the one thing that we can count on in this life, your word. It does not change with circumstances, with cultural differences. It is; It remains constant and true, and for that I praise you. Lord, I pray today that you would give my voice strength, that I will be able to speak clearly, and that my lack of clarity in sound will be made up in clarity of scripture. Lord, if I pray, if I speak anything that is not true, I pray that you would stop up the ears, and what would come to the surface with these women is what is true about what you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen. Take tea. <laughs> So I'm going to go a little bit out of order in today's chapter. As the chapter begins, Jesus is speaking to the disciples. And then in verses 20 through 21, he addresses the Pharisees. And in verse 22, he turns back to speaking to the disciples. So I, wanted to, I want us to begin to examine this chapter in verses 20. We're going to go 20 through 37 first, and then we're going to return to other parts of the chapter. The reason I want us to look at it like this is... Um, in this order, is because the disciples are believers. They're already in the kingdom of God. As I studied, I felt like the instructions Jesus was giving to the disciples were directly related to how to be worthy citizens in his kingdom. Um, So I want us to examine what we learn in this chapter about the kingdom of God first, and then look at how we can be worthy citizens of that kingdom. In verses 20 through 37 of chapter 17, Jesus addresses the coming of the kingdom of God, the importance of being prepared, and the certainty of judgment. So let's look first at what, the Pharisee, what Jesus says to the Pharisees about the kingdom of God. Verses 20 and 21, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Let's remember the Pharisees had been hearing a lot of Jesus' teaching. They had heard his teaching on the kingdom of God. It was the central theme of his teachings. And yet the Pharisees were not believers and were in fact hostile to Jesus and his teaching. teachings. They expected and hoped for a powerful hand and a political kingdom. And so they were listening to hear what they wanted to hear, not what Jesus was saying. The kingdom of God is the person and ministry of Jesus. The Greek word, umen, which is the Greek word for what we see in our scripture called mit, midst, can mean among or within. You may also have heard the phrase, the already and the not yet. Most commentators that I studied would say, That if Jesus is in your heart, then that is where the kingdom of God is. Others, including R.C. Sproul, say that where the king is is where the kingdom is, and it was right there in front of them. Our king has been resurrected and sits at the right hand of the Father, and whoever has the spirit within him is where the kingdom of God is. That's just a slight variation, and I'm not sure which is exactly the most accurate phrasing, but the truth remains Believers are a part of the kingdom, and non-believers are not. So to touch on the already and the not yet for those of us who are believers, the kingdom is already present, but the reality of the kingdom has not been fully manifested yet. There's more to come. In verse 22, Jesus again begins to speak to the disciples, and the disciples, remember, were followers of Jesus and of his teachings. So he tells them that as believers, the day is going to come when they will yearn for his presence. They've experienced Jesus in the flesh, and there's coming a day when he is going to leave them in the flesh, and they are going to yearn for his presence. He tells them that the Son of Man is coming in power. He warns them not to follow those who would point them here and there, because the coming of the Son of Man will be obvious. R.C. Sproul gives an example that I can really understand. We lived in central Florida from 2003 to 2006. Lightning is no joke in Florida. It's dramatic, and it's fierce. The sky can be blue one minute, and without any indication or warning, a bolt of lightning can, can sweep across the sky. Um, and that's what Jesus says his coming is going to be like. In fact, Floridians take lightning so seriously that one of my sons played football, and on the practice fields and the playing fields, there was a lightning pole um, and um, alarms to tell you that, to try and warn you that lightning was coming. The goal was that that lightning pole would absorb the shock of the lightning and give everybody else the opportunity to get to their cars. There was a person on the coaching staff whose sole purpose at practice and fields was to pay attention to what, what lightning was possible, what lightning was near, and give the warning for everybody to scurry to their cars. But there were a lot of times when we would be sitting in our metal lawn chairs because a parent had to stay at practice because of the lightning. And not just because, oh, there might be a storm today, but every single practice and every single game, a parent had to be ready to get their child off the field and into the car to protect them from the lightning. Lightning was fierce and dramatic and serious, serious, and yet that's just a drop in the bucket of what it's going to be like when Jesus returns. He is. He tells them it's going to be obvious. It will be visible. Um, there will be no doubt in anyone's minds that the Son has, of God has come. So Jesus is telling the disciples. You know, we're hearing this a lot these days. I think we may be in the end times. I think we may, Jesus may be on his way or whatever. We don't know. We always need to be ready because that is what he wants us to do. And he's telling the disciples how to be prepared for that day. We're on the other side of Jesus's suffering and rejection and resurrections, but his instructions are still relevant to us as believers. He warns them to be ready. To be prepared, he gives, and I've never thought about this before, and I thought this was really cool. He gives the example of Noah and of Lot. People were going about their ordinary lives, everyday activities, and business. Lot and Noah were both warning. They were saying, God has told us to do this. Noah's saying, God has told me to build an ark. And they had no time, the people had no time or attention to spare for those warnings of God. They took no notice of Noah, and they did not heed Lot's example and warning. And they were all destroyed. As believers, we need to ask ourselves, Are we watching and waiting? Or are we so caught up in the things of our lives here that we have no time or attention to pay to the warnings of God? In verses 31 through 33, we see Jesus, we can feel the urgency as Jesus is speaking. He's encouraging the disciples to have a wholehearted devotion to the Son of Man that is uncomplicated by their desires for material possessions. We've seen this before in Luke 9 and Luke 14. There's a cost to being wholly devoted to Jesus, and that cost is worth it. Our memory verse for this week may have seemed a little strange. It's probably the shortest memory verse you've ever been assigned. So if you skip over those memory verse, you missed an easy week. Uh, this week's verse was, Remember Lot's Wife, Luke seventeen thirty-two. I hope you took the time in your cross-references to read what Lot's wife did. If you didn't, find time to read Genesis 19. It's worth your time. But in short, she looked back. She longed for the delights she was leaving behind, and she was destroyed. The treasure of her heart were the delights of her world. What are the treasures of your heart? What do you hold so dear? We would do well to remember Lot's wife. Verses 34 through 35 teach that there's a clear division between believers and non-believers. There are those that are for the Son of Man and those whose lives show that they are against him. There will be a separation, an eternal separation. There will be judgment. In verse 37, the disciples ask Jesus, "Where?" And Jesus answers, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Leon Morris explains that where the spiritually dead are found, there will inevitably be judgment. Many will honor God, and it will lead to ultimate glory. For the rest, there will be destruction. Jesus' message is clear. Be ready. Our Lord is coming. So, before we move on to how we can be worthy citizens in the kingdom of God, I want us to take just a moment and personally consider your standing with God. Are you like the Pharisees who listened to condemn, who heard Jesus' teachings? You're here learning Jesus' teachings week by week by week. Are you, can you accept them as truth? Or are are you like the Pharisees and tried to turn them into lies? Or are you like the disciples who took the lessons of Jesus and stored them in in their hearts? So let's take a moment. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And I want you to ask God to reveal to you what the treasure of your heart is. Is the treasure of your heart Jesus or is it something here on earth that's temporary? So pray for a minute and I'll close and we'll move on. In Jesus' name, amen. As you prayed, if you had doubts or questions, I want to encourage you to reach out to your small group leader. That's what we're here for. We want to help you know that you know that you know that Jesus is your treasure. So don't be afraid to reach out to someone. So let's quickly look back at some of the things in the beginning of the chapter that Jesus teaches his disciple. These are things that I'm calling things that make us worthy citizens of the kingdom. They're instructions from Jesus. In verses 1 through 4, Jesus addresses the disciples' responsibility to other believers. He's talking specifically here about believers and believers. And the first thing he says is that temptations are sure for all believers. Just because we're believers doesn't mean we're not going to be tempted. It doesn't mean we're not going to sin temptation is just a fact, but God also tells us that he gives us what we need to avoid those temptations, Uh, and we just need to hold on to him, lean into him. The next instruction he gives is do not lead other believers into temptation. There will be a heavy cost for that, and I don't think any of us would say we want to lead someone to sin, but is what we're doing and what we're saying encouraging them to be true to God, and discouraging sin, I kept thinking about, would I give a bottle of wine to an alcoholic? Because the bottle of wine is not a sin, but the drunkenness is. So when I relate to other people, I think the question needs to be, is my behavior, is my heart leading them to fall to temptation that they have? I don't really have the temptation to drink. I took a sip of beer one time. I didn't like it. Everybody told me you can develop a taste for it. Why would you want to if you didn't like it the first time you sipped it? So that's not a temptation for me, but I have to be aware of what I'm doing that might bring temptation to other people. Um, we have to rebuke in harmony. Jesus tells us to remember, to pay attention to ourselves. He's given us permission to rebuke others that are in sin. But he's given us permission to do that only in humility and understanding that we're in the same boat as that believer. We are sinners, not out of a self-righteous attitude, not out of a better-than-you attitude, but out of an I love you because we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And I know what you're going through because I go through it too. But I want to warn you against your sin. That's totally different than going, hey, (laughs) you're a sinner. Stop doing that. It's an attitude. It's our heart attitude. He also tells us to forget forget the repentant as often as they repent. We're supposed to quickly and without hesitation forgive the brother who repents. Forgiveness must be habitual is what Leon Moore says. Something that is a habit is almost without thought. We just do it because we're used to doing it. So we're to be used to forgiving. We're to be willing to forgive. Um, and that is only possible by God's grace. It's not possible by any of our power, any of our dig our toes in and plan on forgiving. It is only po- possible by the grace of God. So the d- disciples recognized that. They realize, oh, wait a minute, we can't do that please, with this faith we've got. Please increase our faith. And Jesus tells them that they can do what he has instructed in them because it's not the amount of faith that matters. It's the object of the faith. Jesus gently corrects them. He says, do not lose sight of the ob- object of your faith. Jesus. It is Jesus that gives even a small amount of power, of faith, the power to do big and mighty things. This made me think about um, all of the people that we read about. We read about so many people in God's word that said, not me. Or who am I? Or I can't do that. Surely Jesus wouldn't expect that of me. I'm not capable of doing that. But when we're in Jesus, we are capable in his power of obeying his word. And that is what he is telling the disciples to do. Great faith does not have a bigger or a better result. And faith is not passive, it's active. And the, he was telling the disciples to rely on their active faith in the power of Jesus to obey him in forgiving his brothers in, their brothers in sin. So then we move to verses 7 and 10, which is the parable that addresses service. So I don't know about y'all, but in my first read-through of this last summer, I thought, "Whoa, that master's fixing to get it. He is about to talk to us about how we're supposed to treat others kindly and with humility and all that. And I thought the point of this parable is to straighten that master out. Not the case. That is not what Jesus was talking about. Jesus... Is teaching us that a servant understands that he has done his duty. He has simply done what the master has directed him to do. Jesus has purchased us with his life. We are bought with a price. We are his sisters, yes, but we are also his servant. If Jesus is everything to us, in serving Him, we have only done what we should have done with the gifts that God has given us. The ungraciousness of the forgiveness we've been given should the graciousness got that un a little too soon the graciousness of the forgiveness we've been given should lead us to a place that is bigger than ourselves. It should lead us to a place of great joy to use the gifts the Lord has given us to use. Now I'm not saying if you teach in the children's department and you don't have a lot of joy today about that, that you should resign. <laughs> As the mother of the children's minister <laughs> at Grace of Ann, I might get in trouble if I said that. As a believer, I would get in trouble because that's not true. We're not supposed to make that choice. The point is, if we are serving God, doing his duty. He tells us, teach the little children. Teach the little children. He doesn't say, teach the little children if you don't travel very much. Teach the little children if you have one in the class. He doesn't give us any qualifications to teaching the children. He just tells us to teach the children. So let's teach the children. And by children, he's not just talking about babies, And little one, he's talking about those that need to hear the word of God. And he will turn that into joy because you are doing the duty you have to do on behalf of the one who has purchased you. Take another sip. I'm so sorry. In verses 11 through 19, we find Jesus performing a miracle on ten lepers. There are a lot of things we can learn from this miracle. But the main thing I want us to focus on today is the one cured leper who returned to express his gratitude to Jesus. He was a Samaritan, and he was um, a leper. There's not much worse you could be in that time. Those two things together doubled the nastiness of who he was. Yet he knew who Jesus was. He was with the other 10 lepers, who, uh, the other nine lepers who asked for healing. Jesus healed them, but he is the only one that fell to his needs in humility and thanked the one who gave the healing. Understanding that our healing comes from God should bring us to our knees in humility and gratefulness for what God has done for us. We're not really fully aware of whether the other lepers were grateful or not, but they didn't express it. They didn't go to the source and express it. They were so interested in regaining what they had lost in their eyes that they missed the opportunity to express gratitude to the greatest healer and the only possible healer for them. How many times do we find ourselves in the situation of being rescued, being healed, being protected, having a blessing unexpectedly, and we just continue on in our daily activities without recognizing and expressing to God our gratefulness. I know I've kind of told this story once, but it may have been a while ago. When I was ill and I wanted to go places, it became a huge joke in my family because there would be a front-door parking place everywhere I went. And I had knees and crutches and all this stuff. And it was hard for me to get in places. But there was only one time that I went someplace that there was not a front door parking place. And I left. Because I figured that was God telling me not to. Because (laughs) over the course of that time, I'd come to find out that as small as it is, God was taking care of me. He was the provider of that parking place at that time. And I had to stop in my tracks and recognize that that was God's provision for me. And just recognizing that changed the level of gratitude I felt. It was not just a simple, oh, thank you, God. Thank you, God. There was a heartfelt change in me to recognize that that sweetness of the Lord deserved my attention and my gratitude should be real and I should express it to him. Being wholly focused and devoted to Jesus like he warned his disciples to be in the later verses that we talked about early, that leads us to this humility and this gratefulness. If we are wholly devoted for Jesus, we're going to recognize when we've been protected, when we've been blessed, when we've been rescued, and we're going to have that humility understanding that we don't deserve it at all. But he is gracious and gives it to us. And who can help but being grateful when you keep that perspective? So as we close today, I want to leave you with some questions. Are you living a life in anticipation, anticipating the return of the Son of Man by being a worthy citizen of his kingdom? Lindsay is in my group, posted the sweet picture at Christmas, and her kids are all have their faces up against the window watching the snow come down. I guess it was that post-Christmas. They're watching the snow come down. And that when I saw that on Facebook, I was studying some of this, and that's the thought came, that came to me. Are we pressing our nose against this life, looking for what's coming next? Are we so busy in here that we don't have time to look out that window? Are we paying attention to sin, do we take it seriously? Are we paying attention to ourselves and sharing that knowledge, that wisdom, that love, that humility with our brothers and sisters in Christ? Do we recognize that faith comes from Jesus? And our question should not be, is my faith big enough? It should be, Jesus, help me do what you want me to do. Are we serving God, and are we grateful for the opportunities to do so? Are we worthy citizens in the kingdom of God? Let's pray. Father, again, I come to you, and I thank you so much for your word. Lord, I pray for each one of us in this room that we would be worthy citizens. We know that that worth only comes through your power and your ability to love us and forgive us and show grace to us. As we leave this place today, Lord, I hope that you will lead us to pay attention, to be watching and prepared for the Son of Man. In Jesus' name, amen.